up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Roots, Rednecks, and Radicals podcast. Today, we're going to learn something new and interesting in the world of Americana, Roots, and folk music. But before we get to that, I want to say a quick reminder to like, follow, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And if you're on social media, give me a follow if you haven't already. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Just search up the name of the show and you'll find me there. All right, let's get to today's episode. Today, I had a conversation with Cole Gallagher. Now, Cole is an up-and-coming, very young artist uh, in his early 20s, and uh, this record that he just put out is, is recorded in Nashville by Vance Powell, who has uh, connections to Jack White and uh, the White Stripes and uh, Third Man Records, and uh, that was the guy who produced it, and uh, the band who played on it was Jason Isbell's band, The 400 Unit, also featuring um, some drums from David Hidalgo, who is uh, the drummer from Los Lobos. It's his son, um, and uh, he's played with Social Distortion and Los Lobos. He's, he's got an incredible career as well. So the musicians on this album are stellar. The producer was amazing, and uh, there's some really good songs on this one. So I had a great conversation with Cole about the whole process of recording and all of his experiences with all that, so I was excited to talk to him. Here you go. Enjoy the episode. The new album is called The Confluence, and it was produced by Vance Powell and uh, features the 400 unit and uh, David Hidalgo, uh, all big names, which is awesome. And uh, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how all that came to be and uh, just a little bit about the recording of the album. Um, everything happened because of time and time again, when I went back and forth between uh, L.A. and the South, uh, people gave a unknown artist a chance. I mean, uh, straight down the line, the first to the very first person who handed me a guitar in Nashville, Tara Lynn Fister, uh, at the Tootsie's Orchid Lounge. Uh, she handed me a guitar. I started played a couple tunes. She went and grabbed the owner of the bar and, uh, I ended up doing a couple, uh, four hour sets on Broadway. And the first time I went there, I was just like, I really wanted to see what, working you know what musicians working nine to five look like because uh up to that point i kind of had a feeling that i wanted to do this uh like as a career i just needed to visually i guess put two and two together as to what what that was going to look like and uh she handed me that guitar i did a couple shifts and i ended up uh um leveraging the fact that I played a couple shifts to get on to uh, Kid Rock's Big Ass Honky Tonk and play on their main stage after one of my shifts. Um, and I just, we did an original tune. We recorded it. I got a, a uh, what, through a strange series of events and a friend of my, of my family's named Mark Levine, who's actually, uh, I later found out, was married to my high school counselor. Uh, so very small circle. Um, he helped me get a NAM NAM artist showcase at an after jam event. So, uh, and that's where I got introduced to Chris Sikora who introduced me to, uh, the guy who would later play keys on this record, John Eldridge. And, uh, John introduced me to, uh, Michael Fahey, who was Vance's assistant at the time and Sadler Baden and Jimbo Hart. And, uh, you know, the, uh, this record, um, basically what happened was I did a record with Chris Sikora and I got, uh, I went and did overdubs in Nashville, uh, 
at the studio that uh, John had helped uh, help us set up, Sputnik Sound. Uh, up to that point, I didn't know who the 400 unit was. I didn't know who Vance Powell was. I, I kind of known some of the people that Vance had worked with. Uh, and as far as the outlaw country scene or Americana, I was familiar with, you know, you know, older guys, uh, Johnny Cash, uh, I, I'd kind of throw Bruce Springsteen and, uh, Tom Petty into that boat as well. And, uh, I was also familiar with, uh, Sturgill Simpson. So, you know, and later on that, my interest in that took another turn and led me to, uh, somebody pretty cool. But, uh, you know, so we did the first record to a click and I basically had a lot more artistic control, but the second I got into the studio with Vance, uh, who called me after mixing the first record about six months after that, uh, showing interest in producing the record, which would later become the confluence. Um, you know, it was all live and it was absolutely terrifying because, you know, I, I knew we were on the clock and I was playing with these killer musicians that, uh, I had gained a lot of, uh, done a lot of research on and gained a lot of respect for, uh, just for the pure, uh, it, it, I guess, a as people because they you know they gave me a chance and helped me make some really cool music uh forehand and then uh just kind of looking at the the bodies of work that all of these artists had accomplished really um uh you know as a 19 year old kid at the time it was really scary you know especially because we recorded during the pandemic and uh um, you know, I, my, I was losing, uh, friends, uh, friend, uh, family of friends and actual family to COVID thinking the world was just ending. And, uh, uh, you know, all like all this, like at the same time that I was in the same time period that I had a drive through high school graduation and lost my grandfather to COVID. Um, I watch uh, all like these amazing things were happening to and for me. Uh, so it was like my body didn't really know how to react. And either way, I was, I was just really nervous standing in the room with these guys because they're just formidable forces and in, in all their respective fields. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay. A couple follow-ups. Um, the, uh, the, the, you said, mentioned a four hour set that, that they gave you a guitar and then, um, gave you a four hour set. Did you, ha you, you had enough material to fill that? Was it, were you doing like 45 minutes, take a 15 minute break and that kind of deal? Or what, what did that look like? Um, so, it, you know, luckily they put me on stage with two other guys and, you know, I would, I, I wasn't too good at sitting in or soloing. So I kind of just like pulled it, pulled up the chords on my phone and strummed along and it, where I could, I'd throw a little fill in or something like that and occasionally give me a solo. But, uh, we, we all shared the load and the, the set never stopped. There wasn't a single break, you know, and that's the way it is on Broadway. Um, and th that, um, it was really eye opening for me. Um, you know, I met folks that were doing really well there. And then I met folks that um, 
were working the the same shift I was at eight o'clock in the morning and uh, trying to feed three kids on tips, you know, in uh, their day job or whatever that looked like and making compromises with their day job or rather usually night job if you were working the morning shift uh, to help put food on the plate for uh, their families. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of like a double-edged sword. I mean, and, uh, you know, one thing that I've heard time and time again is you don't really want to move to Nashville, like, to make it. You want people to think that you already have or something along those lines. Is that That's kind of the advice I've been said over and over again. Uh, in no respect do I think I'm anywhere near doing that quite yet. Um, you know, but making it to me is keeping a roof over your head and keeping food on your plate and being able to play every night. I mean, if you, if you do that, you have a, a entirely 100% respectable career. And even if you don't, as long as you're putting in the hours, I think that that's really what matters. It's, uh, but it's tough, you know, especially like I get a really kind of clean look at, uh, artists here in LA. I've never really shared the bill more than twice with the same people. I mean, there's tons of people out here trying to make it. They all have different sounds and every, every set I've ever played in LA has very eclectic, um, like a very eclectic and broad spectrum of music being played. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of artists like just really going for it, not not getting far. I've seen a lot of artists going for it. One or two of them have some, you know, success. Um, and then I've seen a lot of artists that just kind of give up. So it's it's a brutal, it's really brutal. And I'm, you know, I'm sure as you know, it's it's a it's an unforgiving uh, career. And I, I don't think that there's. Luckily, there's no such thing as a uh, show business emergency, and you have your entire, the entire, uh, your entire life to write your first album. So, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, I don't know if I answered your question. No, yeah, you did. That's just crazy. That, that's that's pretty impressive that you jumped in and went four hours like that. That's that's incredible. Yeah, no, I it was uh, it was scary, just like pretty much everything else. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I guess I'm just kind of an anxious guy, but uh, yeah. I, I was playing a lot of songs I had never heard before. So, it, it, and uh, that kind of uh, opened my eyes to the possibility of what, or to what it means to be a musician, you know? Right. right. My other follow up was uh, you mentioned Sputnik Sound. Is that Vance Powell's studio? Yeah. Okay. That's so, what I thought. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's it, it, his studio. It's okay. really cool in there, man. Yeah, it sounds cool. Yeah, I, I remember reading about him uh, back when he was working with uh, Jack White with the White Stripes, um, or, or the Third Man uh, Studios. And when when Jack White was still getting that set up, that's um, uh, he had an article in, in Tape Op magazine. This was like ten years ago, and um, and he was there recording there and and, and talking about his stuff. And um, that's when he came onto my radar. And um, he's he's super impressive. He's done amazing work in Nashville. Yeah. I'm, Vance, uh, you know, there's no other way to put it. I mean, the dude's just like a wizard. He he knows his board inside and out, and he knows every he knows every inch of his studio. And uh, you know, when I I think like probably the only regret I have about uh, like 
having worked with him is that I didn't spend enough time like really, really paying attention to what he, the things he was talking about, even with other people in there. Uh, and that's just cause I'm a dopamine addict and couldn't get off my damn phone at the time. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it was the, he, and I think I caught, I'd say a very fair amount of everything that went on in that studio, but, um, it, it all happened. It was happening so quick. And, uh, I think at the time, you know, I didn't really know what to, uh, expect. And I wasn't expecting, I was kind of expecting, uh, you know, everybody to get sick in the studio or something. And I'd be like, all right, well, you know, time to go home or whatever. Just, just a dead halt on any progress we were making. And, uh, so I, it was just kind of a weird headspace I was in and, and everybody else around me as well. Uh, you know, Sadler, um, had, we, we were all wearing masks cause Sadler's wife was, uh, I mean, a, cause we had to, but it was a little weird singing, singing with a mask on, at least for the, uh, first part of the recordings until we got into overdubs and I went and re-sang it. Uh, but Sadler's wife was pregnant at the time. Uh, so it was, uh, with Townsend. And so it was, you know, kind of high alert for everybody. And we were all, uh, trying to be very vigilant and, uh, careful and respectful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Those were weird times for sure. And yeah. it, it was scary. I remember when, when John Prine passed away that like uh, sent shockwaves to the, the music community and everyone was like, Oh man, and, like, that was April of 2020. And, um, I, I think it was like a reality check for a lot of people and it really, it really freaked a lot of people out. Yeah, no, I mean, and that, you know, that was, um, when we recorded the confluence, uh, we had this pedal steel player and named Fats Kaplan. And he told us the story of the last time that John Prine played, uh, which was in France and, uh, in Paris and, uh, Fats was on stage with him, you know? And, uh, I didn't know, you know, I, I, I didn't know I, I've, I've had to do a lot of, uh, research after the fact into every name that was brought up in the studio. And I'm sure I'm still missing a lot of them, but, uh, you know, cause the ocean's just so, so, so big as far as, uh, music goes and, uh, so many different like avenues to explore. Uh, but I just recently started kind of listening to John Prine for the first time and, uh, just kind of really blown away. Uh, I, I guess I, it's, it's a little strange, like, I, I listened to like Tom Petty before he passed away for, you know, listen to every one of his records. And I got to see him about two months before he died, or maybe it was two weeks that time's kind of gelling together. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, I kind of, it's very different to like listen to somebody's work for the first time after they're dead, you know, um, whereas kind of, if you do that beforehand, it, you, I'm not like disconnected from the concept of uh, what it might, would have been like to sit at one of John Prine's shows. I mean, I've seen enough live, live uh, stuff on YouTube, but um, 
it's just kind of devastating that I'll, you know, I'll just never get the opportunity to, to experience this amazing music in a live setting. Yeah. yeah. At least uh, sung by him. He was incredible for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right about music, man. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm 45 and I've been a music nerd my whole life. And I, I, I still feel like, like I just a couple months ago, I, I played the show at a brewery and someone came up and told me about RL Burnside and, uh, and, and another blues artist from Mississippi, Arkansas kind of area. Never heard of him. Uh, went and dug into it and I was just like, this is amazing. Like, how did I never hear this? It's just, uh, I feel like it's an onion. You peel the layer. There's another layer. It's just never ending, just layer upon layer, you know? And it's, it's so cool. Cause music's just like that. What's your favorite record? Um, kind of overall of, of all time. Sure. It's, I know it's a really tough <laughs> question. What, what was your first favorite record? The thing that like got you into, uh, Speaking it out over music. I always had um, my my dad was a big um, outlaw country guy, so like uh, uh, Waylon and Willie and, and Johnny Cash and uh, Chris Christopherson. Um, so that was in the background growing up, and my mom was into the Beach Boys, and so that was always kind of there. The first thing I connected to personally was the Beastie Boys. Um, I got a tape of the License to Ill. I, I shouldn't have been listening to it. I was like eight um, when that album album came out, um, and it's it's pretty raunchy. But I had a Walkman, and it was like 1985. I think I was seven. If it was 1985, um, but I had a Walkman, you know, with the old headphones and Sony Walkman. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I bought that tape at a Long's drugstore and uh, listened to it forever. And then the next big thing was that Nirvana uh, when I was in middle school, and then um, then I got into punk rock after that in high school. Uh, Dead Kennedys and and. Um, and then the the modern nine, 90s stuff that was happening, Green Day, No Effects, Pennywise, Bad Religion, that stuff. Um, but then when I got into college, I, I listened to Steve Earle's Jerusalem, uh, which came out in 2001. And that gave me this weird permission to explore roots music again. Um, in high school, I'd been into the blues and country stuff, uh, but I was embarrassed in front of my punk friends because I was like, they, they were, it was like heavy music and it just felt like country was so twangy and dorky. And um, so I was kind of like I was sort of in the closet, I guess, <laughs> about liking blues and country music. And then uh, when I heard Steve Earle's Jerusalem, I was like, man, fuck it. This, this shit's fucking amazing. And so I just like went full into like roots music. And so that's why the name of my show is Roots, Rednecks and Radicals, um, which yeah. is uh, referencing uh, roots music and, and radical you know, punk rock political music and stuff like that. And then uh, the redneck stuff, too, you know, the, the, the Willie Nelsons and the Chris Ledoux's and, um, you know, being from Nevada and growing up in the wilderness and fishing and hunting and all that. Um, that's yeah, it's just sort of like a confluence of, of, of all those things together. It, it, it's. Uh, yeah, now <laughs> country music in my high school was just like a no it didn't just it was like a it's like a bad word you know or damn near associated with like a i don't even know point is i didn't know a single person that like was into the music uh that i kind of it showed interest in and it kind of shied me away from it during middle school and high school Although I loved Johnny Cash, loved Waylon Jennings, um, and I'm trying to think, Steve Earle. My, you know, my dad uh, had this massive CD collection of stuff from, you know, all, it was just all under the umbrella of rock and roll, really. Um, and so it was kind of like I got, I was, 
kind of stuck in a time capsule with what I was listening to. And I, I think it's really kind of interesting that the first record you got into is the Beastie Boys. I mean, it, it, you know, like, uh, I know you mentioned uh, Green Day, because that, that at the, like, that was the first band that I found myself, was Green Day. And, and it was like, oh, you know, like, this is, this is my band. You know, I found, I, I've got, it's like I had found gold, you know. Uh, I remember the first song I ever listened to by them was uh, American Idiot. Okay. Uh, you know, and I was kind of, it must have been like 2007. So okay. long after the fact, but yeah, yeah. not too after. long. Uh, was that the first album you got into from them? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I album names and song titles kind of become a blur in my mind just because there's so many of them floating around. Um, <clears throat> but that, that record, uh, you know, me and my brothers like just played over and over and over again. And then everybody kind of split off and went in their own directions. My little brother like loves rap, loves trap. Uh, and, uh, but he also will jam out to Aerosmith, you know. Um, and uh, older brother is, I, I don't even know, honestly. He listens to a lot of different uh, stuff. It's mainly uh, synth-driven uh, music, though. A lot of, like, EDM, maybe, you know, but more poppy. So it, it's hard to explain, but... He's been all over the map too. I mean, he and I used to listen to like the Black Keys all the time. We just fell in love with that band, uh, you know. But the ones that really connected with me first were like major singer songwriters, uh, um, like uh, David Gray. Um, that that was the first concert I ever went to, and it, and that that was on a different level than Green Day for me. Because I, you know, it's like listening to anthem rock or, you know, anthem punky punk rock versus, um, I don't know. The, he's, I can't remember the person he did this uh, duet with, but uh, David Gray put out this song called Full Steam Ahead, or it might just be Full Steam. And it just blew my mind that this type of music was out there and uh, like ballads where there, there's a clear narrative in a story and uh, the chorus may repeat. It may not, but the point is like from first line to last line, you're taking on this musical journey that, uh, you know, it doesn't, it's not only expressed through the lyrics, but through the music itself that like, you know, there, there's a very clear underlying story and, uh, I fell in love with it. And, uh, I think that really kind of bled into most of my writing. I, sometimes I feel like I can't not write a ballad when I sit down, hmm. which has been a pain for me at, at certain <laughs> points. Yeah. I yeah. hear you. I hear you. That's cool. I love that. I love all those influences. I wanted to talk about a couple of the songs on the album. Uh, the first one I want to chat about was Lines in the Sky. Um, I like that one, and I was wondering if you could just tell us about that one. I'll tell you as much as I can remember. Uh, you know, it, it, that song and Stumbling in the Dark were both kind of written like right at the beginning of the quarantine. And uh, 
being not too far removed from uh, a it feels like forever ago even though just because I feel like I aged four lifetimes during that time but uh, you know I I think that uh, as far as that song goes it, there's a lot of there's a lot of different stuff going on in it um, and I don't normally like to talk too much about what the songs mean personally to me but the the lines in the sky i kind of, i kind of was thinking in my head uh about uh charlie watts drumming you know and uh it's it's strange like i heard somebody talk about charlie watts drumming as having a steady urgency and then you know i didn't know how the song was going to turn out when we actually recorded it and uh the players that uh did it you know work i got to work with uh they really brought it to life in a way that i didn't expect it, it kind of uh, and and it still kind of kept that same feeling that i was looking for when i wrote it i mean i i the first demo i did was mainly palm mutes if that gives you an idea like it, it was just like chunk 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 you know uh, uh, and then barry billings came in with that this really crazy riff that he had been sitting on uh and threw it right in the right in the beginning of the song and i remember everybody's heads turning uh in the studio like see what he was doing and then after the first run through was done uh i think it was um, john eldridge who said you know what, what was that what did you just play and uh barry said oh it's just this silly riff i've been playing with and i've been waiting to use it somewhere and this seemed like the right place nice so yeah that's awesome well uh, the other song i was going to mention was stumbling in the dark and you said you wrote those about the same time yeah um you know, there's a, I, I said it and given a quote before, and I, I think that this is the best way to explain it. Like there is, there is a story in stumbling in the dark, but I w intentionally withheld uh, the beginning of the story and how it ends. So it's kind of, you're just kind of thrown right into the, into the middle uh, of this uh, this narrative going on uh, in my head and, and to some degree like I believe Lines in the Sky was kind of a uh, precursor to that uh, so it came first and then that and then uh, some other songs but it was all kind of a snapshot of exactly where I was at in that moment uh, in my life uh, and there are a lot of other uh, things going on within the song. Um, but, it, you know, that's, that's kind of where I had even gotten the idea, like starting the kind of making it intentionally confusing uh, by starting out the song by saying, it seems that from the start uh, we were stumbling in the dark and uh not giving too much context as to what that means at all in the song uh, until till the bridge. Um, yeah, no, that was it. That song took 
lines in the, the polar opposites as far as the writing goes. Lines in the sky. I wrote started writing at uh, like ten ten o'clock at night on a Zoom call with my guitar instructor John John Clough. He just kind of sat there and watched watched me do this one. Um, and I was on that Zoom call with him until four in the morning. So it was, you know, we had nothing better to do anyways. It was, you know, the quarantine was happening. And then stumbling in the dark, I looked back at the document history because I keep everything in Google Docs. And it said I had started it on June 6th. And then I revisited it on June 10th, June 11th, June 12th, June 16th, June uh 21st june 24th june 28th it took an entire month to finish that song yeah for sure yeah, yeah it's interesting how that works out well yeah. um i think the album sounds amazing and i think it's super cool that you had such a, a an amazing experience to record with all these these big names and um i'm just really excited about uh, what the future holds for you uh if people want to know more about you find you online and your merch and touring and all that kind of stuff what, what's the best place to look for you colegallagher.com Okay, it's got all the stuff yeah. there. Cool, cool. And then uh, links to the socials and whatnot on there. Yeah, no, it's all uh, all there. All there, yeah. All right, man. Well, hey, um, yeah, I love the album, and uh, I w- wish you the best of luck out there, and, and thanks for connecting with me today. Thank you so much, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, to all your listeners, thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening. Just a quick reminder to follow me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to this. Leave a rating and tell a friend. Also, big thanks to Charlie Marks for providing the music for the show. Until next time, everybody. Have a good one.